Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for braving. I know it's a little cold, especially if you're by the windows. Uh, hopefully, um, you're still going to be able to kind of pay attention together as we are hearing God's Word. And so before we even do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, our desire um, is in some ways really simple. We pray uh, that you would help us to see Jesus, um, to see him in such a way that strengthens us, that grows us, that draws us closer to yourself because uh, that is who we are. We are a people who have our hope in Jesus and that is who we need to be. And so I pray as we look at your word that it would be more than just information but that you would help us to encounter yourself. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about uh, forgiveness, which seems appropriate given it's Reformation Sunday. Um, you know, there's this famous parable that probably many of us have heard, the parable of the prodigal son, which tells a story of uh, a loving father and his two sons. And the older son is generally what you think of as an eldest, hardworking, generally obedient, probably a touch judgmental at least. Uh, the younger son, however, is, is different. When he gets old enough to be independent, he decides he's done with his family. He takes his portion of the family fortune and he leaves and he spends it on whatever he thinks in the moment will make him happy, but which eventually makes him empty and broke. And so at a certain point where he is living with the outcome of his decisions and he is brought low, it occurs to him really that the only way forward is back, to go back to his home, even though he is convinced that there is no way that he can ever have the same relationship with his father that he once had because he has so betrayed his family. But to his surprise, as he returns to his home, he finds his father has been there waiting for him. And his father comes to him, and his father embraces him, and his father says, we need to have a party, a, a great banquet, uh, a feast of forgiveness, if you will. But in that moment, we move back to the older brother, and we see the older brother is not, well, he's not feeling the same way that the father did. He is angry, and he's angry not just because of his brother and all that his brother did wrong. He's, he's angry because of his father, because of his father choosing to treat his brother in this way. He is right. His brother is wrong. This isn't fair. And so even as the party is going, he is staying outside on a matter of principle, refusing to come in. And the story is left open-ended with a father coming out, inviting the son in. And what is clear is that the son will never be able to join in this celebration until he is willing to accept that he has a father who forgives. Until he is willing to accept his father as someone who loves and is gracious. Now, I begin with that story because I think, as we will see, there is a lot of resonance between that parable that Jesus tells and what we see in our passage this morning. This morning, for time's sake, we will only be looking through verse 13, although hopefully you will see that even that last part that was read is a part of this and all kind of fits together. And, and what we begin with is we begin right where we left off last week. You might remember last week, Jesus has just cast out demons and this group of people say, we need you to leave this town. And so he gets back in the boat with his disciples and he returns back to Capernaum, back to home base. And there Jesus begins doing what he was doing before. He is teaching. He is healing. And, and we are told as our passage begins that there are four men who bring their friend 
on a stretcher to him. Their friend who is paralyzed. Now, Matthew doesn't oftentimes give us a lot of the details, but Mark and Luke fills this in. You might remember this is the story where Jesus is in a house, probably Peter's house, and, and it is so full that there is no way to walk through the house. And so these four men with their paralyzed friend decide to get creative, and they get to the top of the roof, and they dig a hole in the roof, and they lower the paralyzed man down right in front of Jesus. And you can just imagine that scene, that there's all these people who are like wondering, what is going on? And there's some laughter, and there's Peter going, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to fix this. And then there's Jesus, and Jesus sees this man brought down. And, and Matthew tells us that in this moment, here's what Jesus sees. Not a mess. It says he sees their faith. That is, he sees that there are these five men who know they have a need and have come to Jesus for help, which really is at the heart of what faith is. And so that Jesus then does something that is utterly surprising to pretty much Everyone, he says, son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you are like most people, when you're hearing this part of the story, you kind of feel a little bit bad for this paralyzed man. I mean, he came wanting to walk again. And here's what happens instead. It feels to me a little bit like, you know, when you're a kid and you're going trick-or-treating and you're coming to a house and instead of candy, you get a toothbrush. I mean, it's a good idea, I suppose, but it's not really what you were looking for. And it can kind of feel like that. Jesus doesn't say, you're healed. He says, you're forgiven. And it feels like a letdown. But I suggest that's just because we don't understand what an amazing thing forgiveness of sins actually is. Just consider for a moment the fact that this person that we call God knows you completely and intimately. Consider that there is nobody more amazing, more admirable, more beautiful, no one more creative or generous. The Bible says that every good thing we ever enjoy comes from the hand of God who loves to give us good things. He is generous. He is the one who holds all things in his hand. There's no one who's more filled with integrity and goodness and righteousness. He is greater than we possibly can imagine. That's God. And consider what it means that the Bible says that we are sinful. And by that it is saying that we have so botched our relationship to this God that there is no possible way that we can fix it. I remember um, a number of years ago, um, I was talking with a man who was caught in grave sexual sin. Um, for years, he'd been living a double life, engaging in a significant amount of pornography and frequent one-night stands until one day his family found out. And as I was speaking to him, I mean, he was weeping, filled with shame, but also filled with an awareness that he was never going to be able to be the husband to this wife again. That he was never going to experience his children looking up to him and trusting him again. That he had utterly shattered these relationships through breaking their trust. 
And, and when the Bible says that you and I are sinful, it is saying that we have done something similar, that through our choice to live independently, to trust in money or fame or things other than God, in our decision to keep God at arm's length, the Bible likens it to a spouse repeatedly cheating on her husband. The Bible speaks of our sin being like an a debt so incalculably enormous it is absolutely impossible to repay. It speaks of our sin as a betrayal, of, of casting aside the person who loves us most. It is speaking in so many different ways of the fact that we have shattered into a million pieces the relationship with the one who matters more than anyone else. And I think deep down, many of us actually feel that reality. We feel the fact that there is something wrong. We feel a sense of a shame or a guilt that we carry. And so if you're able to just recognize all of that, if you're seeing that a little bit more clearly, then, then this, this scene suddenly takes on a new light. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, that is the most amazing thing he possibly could have said in that moment. He's not just saying your sins have been forgiven, just kind of giving you some information about what God has already done. He is saying in this moment, your sins are forgiven because I'm the one who is bringing it about. Whatever you have done, whatever stands in the way, you have come wanting your paralysis to be removed and I'm going to be doing something better for you. I'm going to remove whatever barriers there are between you and God so that once again you can come home. You know, that word... Uh, forgiveness in Greek, it literally just means a release, a release from sins. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am going to release you from your sins. When I think of this language of release, I'm reminded of a, a movie from about 25 years ago called The Mission. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's a movie um, that's about this Catholic missionary in South America in the 18th century, and he encounters this Slave trader, trader uh, Rodrigo Mendoza, who has done, as slave traders do, horrific things to the locals. And he has come to an awareness of just how awful what he has done is. He has desired to repent. And, and this Catholic priest, trying to help him to work through his guilt, has given him this task. He is supposed to tie to himself with this heavy rope, this bag that has all of the armor that he used to use, all of the weapons he used to use in enforcing slave. And he is supposed to climb up a mountain to the top of the mountain to meet with the very tribe that he has been enslaving. And so in the movie, you see him slowly stepping with this Catholic missionary, and it is such a heavy burden, and he's going up the hill, and he keeps on being pulled back, and there are times where because of the mud and the slipperiness, he keeps on being pulled back, and it's clear that this burden is just almost impossible to carry, and it is symbolizing for him all the weight of what he has done, the guilt and the shame that he is carrying, and it is terrible. And then there is this certain moment when he finally gets to the top and he encounters the tribe and you can tell on one hand he's terrified but as the tribe comes and one comes with a weapon he is down on his knees and, and there is a knife that is being held to his throat and he is just accepting it because he knows this is what he deserves. But in that moment, the, the, the villager, instead of doing that, takes the knife and goes right behind him and cuts the rope away. And you see all of the armor and everything that was being carried just tumbling farther and farther away. And Rodrigo Mendoza starts weeping. Because in that moment, he knows that he is released. 
that he has been forgiven. The crowd begins celebrating and he starts rejoicing with them. He is welcomed. He experienced this freedom of forgiveness. And I want to say that is what Jesus is giving this man. He is saying, all that you have done, whatever it is, it is released. You are free. You can now know that God is your friend through me. Know that God loves you and you are welcomed home. It is the most amazing thing that he could have said. And, and the crowd recognizes that. I don't know if you noticed, but it talks about how the crowd as they watched were afraid. Why are they afraid in this moment? It's not because of the healing that's about to take place. They have seen Jesus do healings. It's because they have seen Jesus do something that only God can do. And they're like, I cannot believe that God has given authority to, some, to a man to do this. This is something unlike anything we've ever seen. But there is a group that doesn't experience the same excitement and joy. I don't know if you noticed, but there's these scribes who are just kind of watching with their arms just kind of folded and say, he is a blasphemer. Because they're saying only God is allowed to forgive sins. And they're right that only God is allowed to forgive sins. But I don't actually think they believe what they are saying. See, what they're saying is that this man is a phony. That Jesus says he can forgive sins, but his words are empty and he doesn't have that authority. He is just either lying or he's full of himself. But everything we have seen to this point shows that cannot be the case. This is the man who says, you are healed, or says to a centurion, the servant will be healed when you come home, and just those words, all that is needed for things to take place. He has so much authority. I don't think the scribes actually believe that when he is saying your sins are forgiven, that he's lying. I think they don't like it. And that's why I think when Jesus says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? These why are you thinking evil things? And then he says, but so that you might know that I have authority to forgive, rise, pick up your mat, and walk. So the paralytic, who has never been able, or forever, for as long as he can remember, not been able to move his limbs, finds himself standing up, finds himself with energy, finds himself being able to pick up his stretcher, and he just starts going. And, and the, the point is just so clear. If God has given Jesus words that are so powerful that he only needs to say, be alive and then there is life, then we can know that when he says you are forgiven, that there is forgiveness. The point of this story is for us to see that this man who has come proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, this man who has come healing and teaching, Jesus has come to build his kingdom through forgiveness, through enabling people to be released from all that they have done so that he can welcome them, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, home to God. It is a beautiful moment. And the next uh, scene, the two scenes that we're looking at, goes from thinking about this idea of forgiveness to actually showing what it looks like. And what it looks like is a party. So Jesus eventually leaves this house and he's going into the, you know, the village square of Capernaum and he sees this man named Matthew who is collecting taxes. Now, you, you remember maybe a couple of weeks ago I was saying 
that if we're trying to get a good sense of kind of like the political situation of Israel in that day, just imagine Nazi-occupied France. And that's what it likely would have felt to some degree in Israel to be occupied by these Romans under their thumb. And Matthew is serving the Romans. He is a traitor by anyone's standards in that day because he is on their side. The Roman guards are the ones who are helping him take the money from the people and give it to Rome. And what's even worse is if he's a typical tax collector, he's not just taking money for Rome, he's taking a little extra on the side for himself. Tax collectors were like near the very bottom for understandable reasons in that town. And Jesus comes and he sees Matthew And he sees him as he is collecting taxes, as he is doing the thing that is so offensive to people. And he comes to Matthew, and he looks him in the eye, and he says, follow me. And what he's saying in that moment is, I know who you are, I know what you're doing and what you have done, and I want you. I want you for the kingdom that I am building. He is offering Matthew in that moment forgiveness. And Matthew sees it. Matthew, in the moment he hears this, and who knows what preparation there was, but he sees Jesus, he hears this invitation, and says he stands up and he leaves. He leaves that tax collector's booth. And you can almost imagine that all of these years, Matthew has had this rope tied around him and this tax collector booth that he is carrying, and there is this weight of guilt. And in this moment, Jesus has just cut that rope, and Matthew is free. And and our passage then cuts forward to another scene probably a few days later where it says, Jesus is reclining at a table. And, And once again, Mark and Luke fill some of the details in for us when we are told that that Matthew is having a great banquet. Notice it's not just banquet. That would be a big deal already in a town like Capernaum, but a great banquet. In other words, it was legendary. I mean, we're talking all kinds of wine, all kinds of meat. There was music. There probably was dancing. And there's going to be tons and tons of guests. And it's really the guest list, if you notice, that Matthew wants us to notice. It says, in the house, behold, which is kind of an ancient way of saying, check this out. Check this out. Many tax collectors and sinners came. Tax collectors, we already know what their status is. Sinners here means pretty much anyone who was considered disreputable in that time. It could range from people who have just kind of given up on any kind of uh, like synagogue practices to people who are embezzlers or have been caught in adultery to prostitutes. They are the people that everyone thinks are beneath them. And they are all coming to this party. And there is Jesus right in the middle of this crowd, meeting each person, talking to them, wanting to know more of their story, welcoming them, dancing with them, singing with them, eating with them. You know, this story actually, this, this moment gets quite a refutation. This, this party becomes, whether you want to call it famous or infamous. Two chapters later, Jesus will talk about how he knows he now has a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, he wasn't drunk in this party. But this also tells us that when he was at the party, he wasn't kind of like holding church in one corner, teaching lessons. I mean, he was eating, he was drinking, he was laughing, he was celebrating. And and Jesus also says that his reputation is that he is a friend of sinners 
and tax collectors. And that one is true, which is such a beautiful name for Jesus. Perhaps one of the most precious names we have for Jesus, that he is a friend of sinners. Because that's what these people, as they came would have experienced. They came as the rejected sinners of the community, but they left as friends of Jesus. See, what this banquet was about, it was a forgiveness feast. Matthew has experienced a release from all that had weighed him down, his guilt and his shame. He was welcomed by Jesus, which meant he was welcomed by God, and he wanted all of his friends to experience the same thing. And so they came, and they were brought into the relationship with Christ. You know, as I was thinking about this, this image, which I just find, the more I think about it, the more beautiful it is to me of Jesus just delighting to be with these sinners and letting them know that through him they are forgiven and right with God. Can you think of a better picture of what church is supposed to be? A bunch of people who know they are sinful coming to meet with Jesus and to celebrate together a forgiveness feast, knowing that through him their sins are released. That is, that is what we are called to be. It is this beautiful scene, and yet there is once again this group of grumpy people, right? You have the Pharisees, and I'm assuming they weren't willing to come into the house because they wouldn't want to sully themselves, but instead you can see them just at the window, kind of maybe kind of doing this, looking in, and they, they catch the attention of a couple of the disciples and say, do you, do you see who Jesus is eating with? Do you know what they have done? Which is this tragedy, if you think about it, because they are so close to a moment of pure joy, and yet they are so far from it. And this isn't the only time this has happened. We know this. This is the same thing that we saw with the scribes. Forgiveness, and they're unhappy. Jesus is welcoming sinners, and these people are like, I don't like this. There seems to be something that they are constitutionally incapable of experiencing the joy that they are meant for. What they don't realize is that they too have this enormous rope tied to themselves as they are carrying a weight of pride and self-righteousness that is bringing them down and making them miserable. They don't see it. But Jesus does. I think that's why Jesus interrupts whatever conversation he's having with a tax collector or a prostitute, says, excuse me, I'll be back. And he comes to this window, I imagine, and, and he speaks to the Pharisees, not to argue with them, but I think actually in a way that they will never really understand to invite them into the feast as well. He says kind of three things really quickly. He says, look, the, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. He says, you need to spend some time with Hosea 6. The, to, you know, I desire mercy instead of sacrifice or, or loving kindness instead of sacrifice. In other words, you need to recognize that God says relationship matters more to me than ritual. And then he says, look, I came to call, or you could also translate it, I came to invite not the righteous, but the sinners. And what he is saying in, in these three different ways is he is saying, look, you need to understand that I have come on a mission of forgiveness. I, I've come 
to bring people back home to God, to, to release them from their sins. I have come to bring about this feast of forgiveness. And if you want to be a part of it, and I would like you to be, the only thing you need to do is to recognize that you are sick and you are sinful and that you need help. What you need to do is to accept that you have a father who loves to forgive and is willing to forgive you if only you would accept that. And if there's one thing that I think we are meant to take from this passage, it is that. That we have a father who loves to forgive and deeply desires to forgive you and me, if only we are willing to accept that. Who, who desires to set us free from the burdens of guilt and shame that we are carrying and, and to bring us into this feast of forgiveness. You know, we talk about forgiveness a ton in the church, but I wonder sometimes how much we really have taken in that reality. I wonder sometimes how much I have really taken in this reality. Some of you this morning, I think, when you hear this, deep down you have a hard time accepting it because you, you feel the weight of what you have done. Maybe there's something that just you have so much shame in your past or maybe it's as, as you look at your day, day in, day out, and you feel your failure and it just seems impossible to think that God through Christ could deal with it all and that you could be so completely forgiven that he welcomes you without any asterisk. Some of you, I think, might have a hard time with forgiveness because you don't like the idea of God having to forgive you. That deep down, your preference would be the idea that God accepts you because you have done good things for Him, that you are useful to Him rather than Him just accepting you because of grace. And, and deep down, I think, and I speak now from personal experience, the reason that you're holding on to this is because you also have a very hard time believing that God could just forgive you and love you because he does. And if you this morning in any way struggle to see the reality of the forgiveness that God offers you, I want to invite you, even as I invite myself, to just take a long look at Jesus. To see Jesus as he is displayed in these verses as someone who delights to forgive even though that is going to cost him his life to be able to accomplish. To look at Jesus and remember this moment of Jesus perhaps with a grin looking at Matthew saying, follow me. And know that Jesus is doing the very same thing with you, inviting you, follow me. I want to invite you to have imprinted in your mind this image of Jesus dancing and rejoicing and eating with sinners in this feast of forgiveness and know that the one who delights in sinners being forgiven is the one who is inviting you to join him and experience a complete release from your sins because that is who Jesus is. He is, he is the friend of sinners. And so as we conclude our time, I want to invite us, for us, I think, to truly be able to experience the reality of forgiveness, we must first be honest with God about why we need to be forgiven. And so I want to invite all of us, no matter where we're coming from 
to spend some time in quiet before God and acknowledge our need for forgiveness by confessing our sins, knowing that we have a God who through Christ delights to forgive us. And then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. Would you please take some time in, in silent prayer and confession? <laughs>